Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I very quickly wanted to say that this episode is being brought to you by Vincero Watches. Right now, listeners of the show can get 20% off their entire purchase of a beautiful and amazingly crafted Vincero watch by using the promo code CHEF. That's C-H-E-F when they check out at VinceroWatches.com. My Vincero watch has stood up to the heat and sweat and stress of my kitchen for months, and it's my go-to watch that I wear every single day. You can get a Vincero watch in your own kitchen by using the promo code CHEF. Let's Talk About Chef is releasing its 40th episode this week. That's 40 times that you have listened to me wax poetic about the world of food and chefs, and I wanted to thank every single one of you for listening every week and writing into the show. Thanks to listeners like you, Let's Talk About Chef is listened to and enjoyed all over the world by tens of thousands of people. I also want to say a personal thank you to everyone who wrote into the show after last week's episode about stress and Elizabeth's mac and cheese. I got a lot of emails and DMs, and please know that if I haven't responded to you yet, I will as soon as possible. If you want to write to the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at chefbrianclark. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. In the early morning hours of 1944, on the Lower East Side of New York City, a truck was idling outside of a Jewish bakery called Fisher's. As the truck's delivery driver loaded up the last of his orders for the day inside of the bakery, outside on the street, a thief jumped into the driver's seat and took off, with not only the truck, but also the 1,500 bagels that were still inside, and were supposed to be delivered to some of the city's Jewish-owned bakeries and delis. Word of the story quickly spread through the boroughs, prompting a bunch of newspaper men to descend upon the bakery milling around outside, trying to get the story before the evening paper's deadlines had to be met. That evening, the New York Times had an article about the theft. They talked about the truck, about the way in which it was stolen, about how much money had been lost in product, but it also had to include for its readers what exactly a bagel was. Because in 1944, nobody outside of the Jewish communities knew what a bagel was. It was a foreign food, and had to be described and, as I quote, a bagel is an unsweetened donut with rigor mortis. Today, on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about the bagel, the history and the story of one of the world's most popular foods, and how it began in the dirty and cockroach-infested basements of bakeries. But this is the story of more than just a bagel. It's the story of the mafia, of horrendous working conditions, of opportunity and money and bloodlines. And also, this is the story of the rise and fall of New York's Bagel Union Local 338, whose motto was said proudly and fearfully among its members, Go to hell and bake bagels.
The story of bagels is really the story of progress. Before the humble bagel became a breakfast staple that over 70% of the population of North America eat daily, they were being made in basement bakeries on the Lower East Side of Manhattan at the turn of the century. These basements were horrible. Huge, wood-fired ovens would be raging constantly, and to deal with the heat, the bakers would most of the time be stripped down to their underwear, swatting away huge cockroaches that would feast upon the piles of flour that were dumped directly onto the floor. Water came from rusty and leaking taps, and in a never-ending battle to fight back the hordes of rats that would be crawling over everything and living in the wood piles and coal, cats would be running around or sleeping wherever they wanted to. After an inspection of one of these bakeries in the basement of an apartment building, the state of New York said, There appears to be no other industry, not even in the making of clothes in sweatshops which is carried on amid so much dirt and filth. In the corners of these bakeries, men would sleep on sacks of flour between shifts, setting up little rooms for themselves between the crates and boxes. These bakeries were run by businessmen who preyed upon the poor immigrants coming to America from Eastern Europe. These men had skills passed down from generation to generation, and when they landed in New York, they would be snapped up by the bakery owners and put into these places to be forgotten about and to make what they were best at the world at, bagels. These men were hard. They drank homemade whiskey, ate steak burnt black in the wood ovens. Younger workers wouldn't speak to older workers out of respect and fear, and they wouldn't make eye contact with them either. Living and working in these conditions resulted in the saying, lay in the ground and bake bagels, or another translation, go to hell and bake bagels. And something needed to change. Something needed to be done. And so, in late 1920s New York, the bagel bakers joined together and formed the local Union 338, or the Bagel Makers Union. If you wanted to own a bagel shop, you had to hire union bakers. And if you already had a bagel shop, you had to follow the union's rules, and if you ever thought that you wouldn't pay these men what they demanded, or if you thought you could go against the local 338 union, you had what would become one of the most New York things ever happen to you. The bagel makers would strike, and New York would have to live through one of its many bagel droughts. Local 338, when it began, had around 300 members, and membership was exclusive. Because the bagel masters didn't want to spread the word on how to make their secret recipes, most new members were the sons of other members to make sure that the tradition was passed down father to son. If you were the son of a proud bagel maker, then your life was pretty much laid out for you. Go to school, learn about the world, and then start making bagels. The men of the 338 usually only spoke Yiddish, a way of keeping the pesky owners of the bakeries from understanding what they were saying, and it stayed that way until the 1950s when most members spoke English. Despite being a blood relative or another unionized bagel maker, you still had to pass a test. After three to six months of a grueling apprenticeship, a union hopeful had to be able to roll 832 bagels an hour by hand. For those of you keeping track at home, that's 13.8 bagels a minute, or one bagel every 23 seconds. If you could do that, and all of them were the same size and all of them were perfect, you would receive your union card. Now. You would be forgiven for thinking that the union would have a hard time trying to convince their sons to join in the family business. But by the 40s, the union was so strong that bagel makers would be making as much as high-end plumbers or other skilled tradesmen. They made more than teachers and more than shop clerks. They had paid vacations and life insurance and pension plans. The union had turned one of the worst jobs imaginable into one of the best jobs available. 
And as New York grew to understand how delicious bagels were, the city by the 1960s was consuming around 2 million bagels a week. The bagel industry in New York City alone was growing by $20 million a year. And that meant that bagel makers were buying vacation homes, driving Cadillacs, and their children could attend Ivy League schools. Wives of bagel makers went to Tiffany's and Macy's and wore the best clothes and had the best furniture and in general had the best lives in their communities. But whenever you have an industry that's booming, an industry that has control of a market, and a market that in today's dollars was growing by $172 million a year, naturally in Manhattan in the five boroughs, the mafia takes notice. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Saks Underwear. Okay, guys, we need to have an honest conversation about what you're wearing. Because if it isn't Saks, you are missing out on what Forbes magazine has voted to be the best underwear ever. A few months ago, I was just like you. I wore boxers and briefs of various origin and didn't ever really think or care about what I was wearing under my pants, because who really thinks about that? Then I was given a few pairs of Saks as a gift, and I can honestly tell you that my life changed. Sacks are not only comfortable, breathable, and stylish, but they also support you in such an amazing way that in my case holds up to the heat and sweat of the kitchen like nothing else. Right now, if you head over to Saks.com, that's S-A-X-X dot you can get 10% off your purchase of what is truly the greatest underwear in existence. After I started wearing Sacks, I told my coworkers, I told my father, I told everyone, and now I'm telling you. Ladies, if you're listening and you want to get the man in your life underwear that will actually improve his mood and make him happy, honestly, you can do no better than by getting him some sacks. Head on over to sacks.com to get 10% off. And now, back to the show. The idea that bagels were a quick and easy way to make a ton of money soon caught the interest of the New York Mafia. In 1966, there was not only the opportunity to make a ton of cash, but also a new automated machine that rolled and made bagels faster and cheaper than if the mob had to pay union prices for labor. Because of the chance to make so much money so cheaply, Thomas Aboli, known by his mob name Tommy Ryan, the Tommy coming from the name of his preferred weapon, the Tommy Gun, 
decided to open a bagel shop called Bagel Boys right smack in the center of a Jewish neighborhood. Tommy Ryan was not a man to be messed with. He was a capo in the Genovese crime family, even taking over the entire family as the godfather when Vito Genovese died a few years earlier. Tommy was fierce, mean, and dangerous. You didn't mess with him or anyone he was affiliated with. If you did, you usually wound up dead. Your family wound up dead. He was an expert at wiping you and your loved ones off of the map. And it was said that he didn't have a lot of enemies in New York City, and the reason was because he just got rid of them all. Tommy set up the Bagel Boys Bakery with a brand new fancy automated machine that began to pump out thousands of bagels an hour, faster and more efficiently than the union-run bakeries that were in the neighborhoods around him. And it didn't take long for Union 338 to take notice. Instead of realizing that the Bagel Boys was run by a terrifying mobster and that they shouldn't interfere, the union did the exact opposite. The day after they found out, hundreds of union members descended upon the Bagel Boys location, holding signs and handing out leaflets that said, please don't buy. And they were printed with warnings that buying non-union bagels jeopardized the hard-won standards of labor and inspection that New York City residents deserved. When that didn't seem to work, the union members stayed up all night baking bagels. And the next morning, as hundreds of people walked by the Bagel Boys, they were given free bagels and were told why the mob's bagels were wrong. And it worked. A week after the protest started, the union's executive board got a phone call from one of Tommy Ryan's associates, a mobster named Sal Morrow. When the union man who answered the phone's family and children were threatened with violence if a meeting wasn't arranged between the mafia and the union, a meeting was quickly set up. A few days later, the mob and the bagel makers sat down at a table. At first, the mobsters offered to give the union $10,000 to look the other way and stop making a scene, but the union refused. The men of the 338 demanded, instead, that the modern bagel machines get thrown away, and that union bakers work inside the Bagel Boys shop if they wanted to keep running it, and they wouldn't accept anything else. The Mafia frustrated that the demands weren't being met by the Jewish bakers, they walked out of the meeting, not being used to being told what to do, and a call was placed to the bakery to ramp up production and to ignore the protesting outside. They figured that eventually the protesting bakers would leave except they didn't count on the stubbornness of the elder bakers, who remembered what, what life was like before the union and before they had rights, and they weren't going to go back down to anyone, even the mob. A few days later, a sign was posted in the window of the Bagel Boys shop that said that a union contract had been signed and for the protesters to go home, except that the union contract that had been signed was with a dental mechanics union that was run by another mob boss, so the protesters stayed. A few days after that, another notice was posted that a contract was signed, not with the 338, but with a District 5, another mob-run union, and the protesters refused to leave. Every day they stood outside of the store handing out free bagels so people didn't go inside the mob bakery to buy them. Eventually, the mob decided that the only way for them to stay in business was to play by the union rules. They had never met a union they couldn't overrun and they'd never met a group of people that would ignore their threats completely and not care about anything other than getting exactly what they wanted. The mob was beaten, and finally Tommy Ryan had to sign the union's contract stating that he would hire union bakers and pay them appropriately and get rid of his machines. That may seem like a victory. It may have seemed like all would be fine. The bakers could go back to their lives and quietly make bagels in peace, but all the while the Bagel Boys store was causing so many problems for the Union and distracting them, just outside of New York in New Jersey, a 12,000 square foot factory had been set up full of automated bagel machines. And they began to pump out bagels. 
tens of thousands of bagels. And all of them had been filled with fancy new food preservatives that meant one thing. The humble bagel that used to have to be eaten within hours of being made by hand could now be eaten days later. That meant that they could be shipped to grocery stores all over the state and all over Manhattan. Shopkeepers and grocery stores suddenly had a cheaper and better alternative for their customers and for their bottom line. Why buy bagels from the Jewish bakeries that would only last a short period of time and then have to be thrown out when they could buy six bagels in a bag and sell them all week? That company in New Jersey was called Lenders, and they quietly took almost all of the business from the union. Hi, I'm Murray Lender. I'm here in the bread aisle. I haven't gone soft. I just hate bagels that get hard the day after you buy them. Now my new Lenders Bakery-style bagels stay chewy and delicious for days and days. Mmm. Like sliced bread. So look for me in the bread aisle, too, for new bakery-style bagels that last. It's a Lenders first. Smiley, good to see you. Lenders was not only able to sell and bake bagels, they could also sell bagel dough. And soon the highway into Manhattan was filled with trucks carrying frozen bagel dough to new bakeries that didn't have to be a part of the union and pay union prices for labor because the dough was already made. All they had to do was pop it into their ovens and bagels would come out cheap and delicious, about 40% cheaper than union-made bagels. Local 338 delved into chaos. Their weekly meetings turned into shouting matches with members screaming that this had to be stopped or everything that they worked so hard for would be wiped away. No one knew what to do. No one had any idea how to stop the bagel deliveries from New Jersey, and it was during one of these meetings that the door was whipped open and the mafia walked in. They too didn't want the bagel bakers to be overturned, and so it was offered that for $50,000 the deliveries could be stopped by using muscle. When the board asked the mob how they planned on stopping the deliveries, the response was, the less you know, the better. And so they politely said no. That they would figure it out themselves, and the mob left shaking their heads. The only option the 338 had was to try and convince the bagel makers that ran the machines in New Jersey in Lenders Factory to join their union. They could take down lenders from the inside, force them to pay more money, and more importantly, follow their rules. And after wooing, threats, and meeting after meeting, the New Jersey workers turned down the 338. They were happy with their union, a union that was apparently controlled by the mob. By 1970, there were only 152 members of the 338, most of them old-timers that were clinging to the idea that they would somehow be able to take over their lives again, somehow be able to go back to the old ways. All over New York City, more and more automated bagel shops were opening, Grocery stores feeding the newfangled suburbs weren't interested in old-world bagels. Housewives and families wanted bagels that would last a long time. Bagels that weren't really anything like a bagel should be. On July 1st, 1971, the 338 closed. There was no one left. It became a thing of the past. The new ways and the new world had won. And bagels had become the most popular food for breakfast in North America. Lenders Bagels was up until a few years ago the market leader of bagel making. They accounted for 16.2% of sales in North America of bagels in 2008. They were the biggest bagel company for over 50 years. And as the world moved on becoming automated and mechanical and as the 80s made way into the 90s and everything became electronic and computerized, companies like Lenders kept growing and growing until something happened that these corporations didn't expect. 
People began to eat locally again. People began to buy fresh bagels again from small bakeries. In the last 10 years, more and more neighborhood bakeries have been popping up, baking breads and bagels for customers that appreciate things being made by hand. The trend of using local and handcrafted has come full swing back, and companies like Lenders are suffering and watching their companies start to fail. The world is changing. Despite what big business wants you to believe, the local movement is making holes in their wallets and in their factories, and that is an amazing thing. People are buying local again. People are buying handcrafted again. People are seeking out the best and ignoring the mundane options that are so easily offered to them at their grocery stores and Costco's. And that is nothing short of a miracle. I love the thought that big business is screaming in their boardrooms trying to figure out why neighborhood bakeries have lines stretching down the block every morning. I love the thought that these corrupt asses can't figure out why their cheaper and less delicious food isn't being bought anymore. And it's because, in the end, artisans like the local 338 had it right all along. People deserve the best. We all deserve to eat well. We want to eat something that has been mastered. Something that has been obsessed over. Something that has taken someone their entire lives to figure out the magic of and then pass those secrets down to their families. And that's a wonderful thing. So go stand in line. Drive away from the parking lot of your Walmart and drive back downtown. Back to the small shops, the small bakeries, the small stores, and the small independent businesses. Because they're back. And despite the efforts of generations of big money, they aren't going anywhere. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. I want to thank Vincera Watches and Sachs for letting me talk about them this week. If you want to write into the show for any reason, you can send an email to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me personally on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. We are back next Thursday with another brand new episode. And so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. Slip away.